And welcome to Bethany Northeast. It is a joy to be with you as we worship and gather. I would love to dismiss and bless the kids as you go. Uh, Go in the grace and peace of our Lord to know and learn about the fullness of God. And so kids, for your classrooms, we have Amy back there. She can uh, help lead you out as well. Uh, A couple classrooms there that you can go to uh, as as well as some other classwork. And uh, thank you, Andrew and Avery, as you've led us this morning. Again, welcome, friends, to Bethany Northeast. I'm Silas, associate pastor here. It is a joy to be with you, and I am grateful to be worshiping with you today, both on site and online. And I'm grateful that we have this space to pause, to worship, to gather. Now, conventional wisdom might say that um, I should wish us a happy Memorial Day, but of course we know that memorials aren't always happy. And so we sit with that pause today, recognizing that we come with the weight of life, and we hold that in memory. We hold that space In light of, as Jack even alluded for us this morning, the news that came out earlier uh, this week, we had news from Texas, and then before that, L.A., and before that, Buffalo, and then before that, ongoing rumors of wars and wars themselves, we, we hold this space. And so we pause and we remember. We mourn loss of life, and we also honor all life that has left us too soon. We lament all acts of injustice, and we pay tribute to those who have left. We also recognize the complexity of emotion that death brings to us, and we remember that at our worst, at our worst, we might even be capable of the same. And so I'm grateful today to be with you. If you would, join me for a moment of silence, just as we grasp the gravity of the moment. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We pray that as we hear your word, this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ. Form us and speak to us today. And in our hearing, may we reflect you well in the world. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. In 1566... Teresa of Avila, she's a Carmelite nun, she wrote a book called The Way of Perfection. And this was a book that arose within, uh, within her as a response to a changing world. So several years before she wrote this, uh, there had been a massive influenza pandemic. 
And the world was still adapting to this. And then politically, the world was shifting from feudalism to uh, modern systems of government. So there was a shift politically that was happening for her. Then religiously, she's a Catholic. Catholicism was morphing. Lutheranism was rising. Uh, it was growing. And she, in her writings, she was actually being subjected to the Spanish Inquisition at the time. So her writings were no longer being able to be spread out or disseminated. And civil unrest, economic disparity, reshuffling of society, division was manifesting in war and violent conflict. And it's to this kind of world that Teresa opens the beginning of this book, The Way of Perfection, and she says these words. What has become of Christians now? Christ has so many enemies and so few friends. The world is on fire. What are we to do? The world is on fire. What are we to do? 450 years on from when she wrote these words, can you relate to what she's written? The world is on fire. What are we to do? This morning, we should be continuing our series in a line of the invitation to wholeness. And this series we've been in uh, this, for the last uh, couple weeks has been about finding wholeness in relationship with God. So invitation is there. Specifically focusing on how we might participate with Christ in the redemption of all things. There's a lot that could be said here, but if you are interested in exploring the, the, the series more, uh, we have a thing called the Global Monastery. It's a thing where all our locations, we share texts about the series, the week, and then we also have practices you can do. So the Global Monastery is a thing that invites us um, to reflect on uh, the series. If I were to have preached that sermon this morning, we would have focused on the idea of being a servant is different from being a service provider. And if you're a Christian, our faith presses us to live relationally, not transactionally. So the, the week, the topic is supposed to be service. Service for Christians invites us to be reminded of covenant with God. It's not something we do out of convenience. And the, the series itself, this sermon, would have pressed us towards that. If you do want to see what I would have said, we have a video on the Global Monastery of that. So I want to point you to that as it relates to the series that we're in. If you want to continue the series, if you've been tracking really closely with us, there's still things that can be said. Look at the Global Monastery. Uh, it will lead you to any social platform you want, and you can connect that way. And so the, the website there, churchbcc.org slash global monastery, again, for a word on service and how that interacts with our lives, how we participate in the life of God through service, there's great content there. And there'll be content all week with scripture passages as well. But, you know, as we were thinking about this, as I was thinking about this, as I was reflecting on this moment that we're in, the week we've had, talked with our team about it and said, it just didn't feel like you could settle talking about service. What can you do? Um, 
at least in the way that we've wrapped it into the series. It's not a bad word. It's just a recognition that I felt unsettled landing there. And so instead, I want to take us a little bit of a different direction. I want to pivot us this morning to focus on the concept, the idea of thoughts and prayers when the world is on fire. Thoughts and prayers when the world is on fire. Again, to Teresa's words, what do we do? What are we to do? If you would look at our passage, our passage is from Luke 18, verses 1 through 9. We're reading from the NIV this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This, friends, is God's holy word spoken to us this morning. How might you define prayer? How might you define prayer? What is it? If you had to tell someone what prayer is in one sentence, what, what might you say? What would you say? Whether you identify as Christian or not, what would you say prayer is? Also, not a rhetorical question. Any takers? Yes, Andy. Talking to God. Right. Others? Thoughts? What do we think? Being in his presence. Thanks, Andrew. That's good. Others? What is prayer? As we have talking to God and an embodiment and presence, a relationality is connected there, isn't there? You know, the most basic definition of prayer is talking to God. Prayer is not meditation or passive alone. It's direct address. And that's one of the things that makes prayer, as it's framed within Christianity, Uh, a practice that we do, right? It's not something that just happens for us. We actively engage. We make conversation. We talk. One of my favorite theologians, Roman Catholic guy, Hans Urs van Balthasar, great name, but also a better writer. Um, He has this book called Prayer, and he says, firstly, prayer is a conversation between God and the soul, and secondly, a particular language is spoken, God's language. So God speaks to us through a variety of things. 
Prayer is dialogue, not man's monologue before God. There's this interactive nature between what we say is happening within prayer. Dialogue, not monologue. In these responses, notice what we didn't say prayer was. We didn't say it was self-promotion. We didn't say it was unreflexive platitude. We didn't say it was a replacement for lived life or, or action. We didn't say it is a substitute for responsibility in any way. Instead, as a conversation with the divine, prayer is an act of responsibility, our ability to respond to God, to respond to the grace of God. And as an act of responsibility, it illuminates how we live out responsibility in the world. In prayer, our responsibility opens us up to responsibility. In prayer, our ability to respond to God opens us up to the responsibility we share for the world. This is what prayer is. This is what prayer does. It's a conversation that wraps us into a larger conversation, a larger narrative. Especially in the aftermath of national tragedy, it's possible that sometimes prayer becomes a kind of like co-opted, reflexive rhetoric. It, it strips away the power and design to dialogue with Creator, with God. When that happens, that is evil. Right? Like that, that takes away all of the meat that prayer is supposed to lead us towards and nourish us towards and also feed the world. This is not what we're called to do. This is not how we're called to embody faith. But again, circling back to Teresa's pointed question, like, well, then what do we do? How do we pray? What do we do when the world is on fire? When it comes to parables, it's important to remember that parables are pointed stories that speak to us in a variety of ways. Every parable contains multiple inversions. And so each inversion that we have for a parable also offers us an invitation. It speaks to us in different ways. If you would, there's a picture of five different translations there, Bill. Take a look at this image with uh, the different translations we have for our passage in Luke. Or if you have your Bible, take a look at your Bible. We found it. Look at these translations here. We have the NIV, the Lexham Bible, International Standard, Parables on Prayer, um, the Common English Bible. Notice how they focus on what is being said in the story. In the NIV, we have the parable of the persistent widow. Take the story, read it through the next lens, the parable of the unjust judge. Invert it. What is it inviting you into? If it's a parable about justice for the faithful, what is it inviting you into? Right? All these subtitles, they're, they're, they're added in after the story. And that's to help guide, 
right? But even the, the chapter breaks, the verses, those are all additions, right? And so a recognition, just a side note, like the first evidence we have of someone reading the Bible personally for themselves, silently, as we would typically read it, like devotionally, that only happens starting in the fourth century. That's the first evidence we have for the word not being proclaimed without chapter breaks, that kind of thing. So sharing the word in community is a large piece of why we do what we do, what we do, and why it matters. In this parable, again, it begins with some crucial information. I want you to consider verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. That's what the story is going to be about. That we should always pray and not give up. If this is what the parable is trying to do, you know, show us what to, how to pray, not give up, then through the inversion that focuses on the widow, what does that invite us into? Let's follow the story. In verse 3, we discover that there is a widow in that town who kept coming to the judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And she continues and continues. She goes on. She doesn't stop until she sees a breakthrough. Finally, the judge says he's going to act. And the takeaway here seems pretty plain to us. The inversion of the persistent widow invites us to bring petitions to God, right? It invites us to ask that our needs are met. It invites us to engage God with a level of like um, doggedness or persistence. Uh, One of the other translations, an older translation, titles this section, The Nagging Widow. So like there's different ways that even translators have engaged this story. But there's a level of don't stop, keep going. Engage God. And this is a good reminder for us, right? Because we are to pray without ceasing. Like pray with persistence. Pray until change happens. If you're anything like me, This is typically how we have read this story. And notice what makes this reading possible. This is what we glean when we center ourselves in the story as the widow. Totally fair, totally timely word. It is right and good to pray with persistence. It is right and good to do that. But now, consider what happens when we go through another inversion. Look at the Lexham Bible. This one focuses on the parable of the judge. This translation invites us to explore the story through the position, through the placing, through the centeredness of the judge. How does this parable read us when we see ourselves in the judge's position? You know the drill? Let's follow the story. What does the story say? Verse 2, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. In other words, he is his own person. He's his own man. He walks the beat of his own drum. God or neighbor, they don't guide his decision. He has full autonomy and agency on his own. That's what that verse is telling us. Verse 3, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. 
This is striking. Don't miss it. If the widow kept coming back to him, another way to frame this is that the judge wasn't responding. There would be no reason for the widow to keep coming back if something had happened. So the judge, full autonomy, full agency, the judge who is his own person, has thus far responded to the widow's cries with apathy. And as the story continues, eventually the judge responds to the woman's cries for justice, but catch this, his response isn't a response rooted in the needs of the widow. His response, verse 5, is rooted in his own sense of well-being. He says, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. So the motivation is myself, that I don't get attacked. What do we make of this inversion? This is what the shift in centeredness invites us into. Think about how this parable about prayer and never giving up changes when we are like the judge who can make decisions to act and bring about justice. In this inversion of the self-determined judge, we're invited to respond to the cries of the marginalized and make decisions and act in a way that brings about justice. And this is where the story starts to get real for us. Because in the widow inversion, when we glean that this parable invites us something, it invites us to bring petitions unceasingly to God. Right? Don't stop. Where is God? God is the judge in this inversion. In this reading, this is where we place God. If we see ourselves as the widows, we would say, God's the one we're petitioning. God's the judge. But now, in the judge inversion that invites us to respond, to make decisions, to act, to bring about justice, where's God? If we're now the judge, where's God in the story? God is embodied in the widow, articulating the cries of the marginalized and the oppressed. And as we have full autonomy to respond to God's cries, the parable ends by asking us this pointed question. Verse 8. When Christ comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is what we glean when we center ourselves as the judge. When we are defining prayer earlier, We talked about prayer as a conversation. It's talking to God. It's relationship with God. As God speaks, what do you hear? What cries for justice are in your ears? This story completely flips when we see that God is always crying out, saying, let my people go through the agency of others. God is the widow in this story, oppressed and taking the call. 
Like changes and says, as the judge, as people who are autonomous, who have agency, who have the ability to respond to the fullness of God, what will you do? The story is about prayer. It is about never giving up. It's also an understanding that prayer isn't a one-way street. So pray, offer prayers, but then respond to what God is saying. Prayer is a conversation. It makes us think to the question, do thoughts and prayers do any good? Do thoughts and prayers do any good? Perhaps when we invert the question, what it's really asking us is what kind of good do we intend to do with our thoughts and prayers? What kind of good do we intend to do with our thoughts and prayers? During Advent, we had an uh, a artist theologian join us, Scott the, Scott the Painter on Instagram, or Scott Erickson, and he talked about prayer. And he said this pointed thing about prayer for us. He said, prayer is not getting God to notice you. Prayer is not doing that. It's not posturing to get God to notice you. That's voodoo. He says, prayer is becoming aware of what God's inviting you into to participate in, in enacting and speaking life and being into things that are being created. Following along in our theme with Catholic nuns, couldn't help but read the words this week of Mother Teresa. She said, I used to believe that prayer changes things. But now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. That doesn't mean it's to the exclusion of God's work in our lives. It does say that the way we engage the world is empowered through the conversation of God. That is how prayer acts on us. Now certainly, I recognize that in our gathering, we come from different expressions of Christianity. In my expression of Christianity that formed me, the idea of praying prayers of faith to manifest new things, new life. That is, I mean, that's familiar for me. So the idea in the Pentecostal tradition of speaking and enacting and being engaged with the Spirit so that God works, like participating in God's speaking creation into being, that's a big part of Pentecostal theology and expression, right? Not all of us come from that background. So how might you read that if that's not one of the ways that you engage the world? This story invites us to pray, respond, and hear, and also bring about the newness of creation. Perhaps you come from a different kind of tradition. In the expressions of Christianity that that exist, prayer functions in different ways. That doesn't mean there is one that's better than the other. It is recognizing that the Christian tradition has different ways of talking about prayer. For our purposes this morning, this is one angle, one that engages prayer through the lens that looks back at us and says, where do you find yourself in the story? When the world is on fire, what are we to do? This way of thinking about prayer it kind of presses back 
on the sense that it's something we just throw out there and wish for things to happen. Notice that in this story, as we flip it and as we let it read us, we are invited to act, to embody. We also recognize that that is costly. For Teresa, she was part of an order of nuns known as the, Carma, the Carmelite nuns. And there's a nun who comes much later on in her history and in her order's history known as Edith Stein. And she becomes a Catholic nun. She's originally um, not Catholic eventually becomes Catholic and becomes devoted to the life of God, to the life of service she finds with her fellow sisters and nuns, the community there. It kind of captures her. And then as Nazism is growing in Europe, she gets sent from her convent to the Netherlands to kind of protect her because she's Jewish. And then as time unfolds, her order, uh, they don't jive well in some of their social action against the Nazis. And eventually, Nazis come and they go to the Netherlands from Germany. And they take her and her sister. And their lives, they end. But as she is on her way, one of the things that she mentions and she prays with her sister is this word that in prayer, we cannot let prayer become a banister. And what she's meaning by that is prayer is something we just hang up and let, let fly and show to the world. It isn't something to be displayed. It is something to be lived and enacted. It is something to wrap us into the life of other. It is not something we put on a pedestal. It's not something that elevates us above others. And in this way, she's critiquing the ways that religion has been used against her now. Because she makes a note to say, everything that's happening in our country right now, as she's responding, she writes a letter to the Pope and says, everything that's happening all of that is coming from a Christian nation. So what do we do with that? How do you respond to that? Don't let prayer become a banister. For her and her tradition, for her and her life, her last words are some of those words. Prayer is not a banister we hang up. Prayer is a conversation that wraps us into the life of God found in our life and relationship with the rest of creation. Reminds us of the words of Paul. All creation is groaning and longing for humanity to respond to the fullness of God. This is how thoughts and prayers change the world. Not when they're banisters, but when they're words to make us ask this question. What kind of good do we intend to do with our thoughts and prayers? We're going to close today with one of Teresa's famous prayers. You might have heard this before. 
but it speaks of the embodiment of Christ. And I want to do this in two ways. We'll have it on the screen. And first, receive these words of prayer. I'm going to pray them over you. And I'll pray these words in a way that I hope you receive and that guides your spirit, guides your soul. So first, receive these words. And then we'll pause. And then let us pray these words together as a body, over each other, and over our lives. First, receive these words, friends. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands and yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body here but yours. Receive these words, friends, and let's meditate on them. And then I'll invite you to join me as we pray them again. Friends, let us pray these words together. And in our speaking, may we also hear the words of our friends, our community, communicating the same fullness of God. Join me. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. Amen. Friends, as we go this week, reflect and meditate on this word. As we continue on in worship, allow the words that we will sing of God who holds everything together to also illuminate ways that we might be agents of God's holding. God's hands that As the Sunday school song says, his hands hold the whole world in his hands. How might we join in that work of holding?
in that work of hands that uplift, hands that hold space, hands that make room, hands that minister to those in need. This is our call, and this is what prayer does. Let's continue on in worship.